Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein. And we like to do that in the space of books and authors and pastors and comedy, music, sports, great testimonies. The list goes on and on. And uh, excited today to have a guy on here that ties into a few of those things, vast array of things our guest Peter Greer has done. But one of the things we're going to focus on is he wrote a book that I know has impacted me and a number of people in my world pretty significantly called Mission Drift and probably is somewhat like the title says, but I'll get into a moment why that book had significance for me and some leaders uh, in Springfield, Ohio, but uh, we'll let Peter share a little bit about himself. So welcome. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Thanks for having me on. So you run an organization called Hope International. And because I know more about some of these other things, I know less about that. So fill folks in on what you're doing in your day job with Hope International. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I work with Hope International here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania is where our headquarters are, but we work in 24 countries around the world. And Hope was founded after the fall of the Soviet Union when an entrepreneur here in Pennsylvania started sending over food and supplies to Ukrainian churches. And he did that for a couple years until a moment where the pastor pulled Jeff aside and said, Jeff, your help isn't helping us anymore. And what they began to realize was it was creating some unhealthy dependency. Mm. And what was so good and appropriate in a time of crisis As time went on, the Ukrainian church wanted to provide for their own needs, stand on their own two feet, and not become dependent on on Western aid. And so that really was the conversation that led to the founding of Hope International. So Hope International made that change from aid to more longer-term development, um, and we do it through the tools of Christ-centered economic development. So microfinance institutions savings uh, groups, and really this idea about how do we train and equip entrepreneurs and then allow capital mobilization so that entrepreneurs that have the drive, the desire to work, they then have the means, the ability to invest. So at this point, uh, we've been doing it since 1997, and we now have invested in uh, 2.7 million entrepreneurs, and um, uh, 98% of our loans are repaid, so it just allows us to have the funds go out, they come back in, and we're able to do that again and again with a remarkable group of church partners and a global team in those 24 countries where we where we serve. So that's the that's the story of hope. That's my day job. I hope people hear that. That's crazy. 98%. I mean, you almost think like that that's shocking to me. I would thought it was a lot lower, but you're thinking, man, what's wrong with the 2%? And what what how does some of that 98% play out? I mean, do people buy in and then they kind of start supporting it on their own as a, you know, as a charitable giving kind of thing and that helps do it or is it these entrepreneurs end up just paying it back on their out of their own? Yes, yeah, so this is something that Hope International didn't create, but there was a broader movement that, again, recognized that those individuals that are living in poverty, if they go to a normal bank, what does the bank require? Show me your collateral. Individuals living in poverty don't have anything mm-hmm. that the bank would recognize. Show me your credit history. They don't have a credit history. There's not a credit bureau. Show me your cash flow. Show me all of these components that mean that if you are born in a position of, of in a place of poverty, if, if you or I were born, we it didn't matter how much we wanted to work. If we could never get that investment, if we could never get that capital, uh, we would not be able to start a small business uh, of some sort. It takes money to make money. And if you're born in a place of poverty, it is exceptionally difficult to get that startup capital. And so what they discovered, though, is individuals, they might not have all that, but if there's a way to verify their character, that Mm. means that we can show their creditworthiness. And so uh, Muhammad Yunus, founder of the 
Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, what he really pioneered was this idea of a social collateral, that if we give individual investments to entrepreneurs, but do it within a group context where they do the screening of each other's business and their character, so that if you and I are in a group together and I take my money and I go to the tavern tonight, you've said, I will cover for Peter's payment. Now that creates this incredible mm. incentive to only allow individuals into the group that really do have the right character work ethic. And so that is the reason why this has been successful. It takes what formal banks have an inability to, to use in the decision of who gets a loan, who gets an investment, gives it to the group for them to do that process. And the net result is if you can figure out a way of screening for character, uh, you can have uh, a 98% repayment rate. Individuals just need that opportunity. And so we're just trying to do that. How do we do that? And then within the context of the global church, how do we do that as part of the Great Commission? How do we bring together this idea of investing in entrepreneurs' jobs and also having the opportunity to share about the hope of Jesus Christ as yeah. we do this work? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I think... We all love the philosophy, and you hear this a lot in leadership circles, Christian leadership circles, about spend twice as much time on your character as you do your competence. Well, to see that kind of success, which anybody would love that stat you threw out, it just boldly speaks to, okay, you focus on character, you're going to get the result. And, uh, man, you want that thing to transfer out to a whole lot of other places and spaces in culture, in Christian culture. Wow. I, I'm just I'm flabbergasted. I can, I can stay on this the whole rest of the talk. <laughs> no, but it's true because we work in some very diverse places across, started in Eastern Europe, but now a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and Latin America as well. And even though the context is different, uh, there are individuals in every single one of those places of the right character. The model works mm. um, regardless of context. And that's been really fun to start in Eastern Europe, but now to have this much more global presence. Well, and it'd it make the gospel so easy to be responsive to, because I'm sure a lot of that's having to do with people knowing, following, coming to Jesus, loving Jesus, yada, yada, yada. So before we get too far, let's let's get into your kind of three-minute testimony, Peter, how you came to Christ. Yeah, so I had the enormous privilege of growing up in a home where my parents were very active in, in ministry. My dad was a pastor, and you know, you go to a lot of pastor events, and very rarely do kids there's a wide variety of, of how pastor kids turn out on mm -hmm. that. And I think a huge piece is if kids feel the pressure to perform, that kind of pushes them in a situation. And I never felt that. Even though my parents were involved, I felt like I had the freedom uh, to be a kid, to figure it out on my own. And I had the benefit of parents that, you know, they would share on Sunday morning and then they would live it out on Monday morning. And there was mm. no difference between the person that they were Amen. on Sunday morning and the person that they were. So I was given this incredible gift. And then it was in high school that that moment, I know you were involved in, in Young Life, but we had something similar in Massachusetts. And it just was this great uh, opportunity to see it lived out. And I would say that was the moment uh, where personally I said, this is not play. This is not pretend. If Jesus is who he said he was, if Jesus really was who he said he was, that changes everything. And so that's been the journey since then. How do I fully follow in all aspects of my life? And um, yeah, been an amazing journey. Started in Cambodia and then in Rwanda and then Zimbabwe and um, now travel to a bunch of different places, but really being grateful for, yeah, truly global, the global church, global brothers mm -hmm. and sisters that continue to show, teach, to model what it looks like yeah, to live a life under the Lordship of Jesus. So that's the journey that I'm on and uh, really been impacted by my parents, but then also part of this global work that I'm a part of as well. So I love to travel. Let's stay on the kind of, you've mentioned a whole lot of countries. People say, I like the name drop. You like the country drop. Um, <laughs> where you can elaborate. There's obviously advantages with the gospel for you to have been as many places as you have to see the church on a local level, Big C Church, see the gospel expand, grow, flourish. There's things that are going to be major positive. Maybe hit on a couple of those. Is there anything negative that you that you would say is a negative about being exposed to everything you're exposed in as you travel? No, I mean, on the, on the positive side, you know, I think I've probably been most profoundly impacted by the places uh, around the world that are restricted access, uh, difficult um, to reach, not a lot as a percent of the population, followers of Jesus. And you go into those places and you can find the church. Uh, you, you can find, and it is a 
crazy cast of characters uh, mm. that end up gathering together. And in many places, there are not lots of churches, but it, it reminds me, you know, you read about the early church and it was a crazy group of people that were gathered yes. together, but with this message of Jesus is enough on that. And so I think that's one of the uh, gifts. You get to travel, you get to see, and you get to participate in this immediate welcome as family in the different places around the world. And that it really is true that if we focus on Jesus, ah, it brings just this incredibly diverse group together. So I love that aspect. Yeah, I, I don't know. The only negative is sometimes when I get home, you know, the image that we have in the book of Revelation is that there is every tribe, every language, um, and maybe the one negative is you get home and you don't have every tribe, every nation uh, reflected in my experience on a Sunday morning. Um, and so I think just those opportunities to get my eyes beyond just the local context and to remember eternity is going to be filled with individuals from every tribe, every tongue, every language. And uh, yeah, maybe it just creates a little bit of a longing uh, yeah. for that experience as well. I love the global worship. I love the difference in culture, all built around that same truth that, uh, yeah, Jesus Jesus is Lord and Savior. Yeah, see, that would, that I would think that's the challenge. That would be hard for me if I'm in your shoes, going all these places, and then you come back. How do you not get jaded and disappointed in Lancaster, PA? Like, come on, you guys, let's get together. Forget the Presbyterian church here, the non-denominational, the Methodist church here, whatever. It should be easy to come together because I've seen it all these places around the world. So do you, do you have to fight anything and kind of put on extra Jesus to make sure you're, you're not dealing with that on a local level, wherever you're connected locally? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but I think the the benefit is in my day job, I'm connecting with individuals from a lot of different countries. So that certainly still is the experience uh, that I get. But it does cause you to say, like, what, yeah, what is most, what is most important? And I find it so interesting to know that the night before Jesus went to the cross, John chapter 17. Jesus is praying for you and for me, and the prayer is specific. It is this prayer that we would be brought to complete unity. And then it says, then the world will know that you have sent me. So our witness to the world hinges on the way that we treat each other. And and I just think about that as a great invitation. So maybe I spend more time instead of kind of critiquing you know, the lack or the challenge, yeah. spend more time saying, how do I live into that? How can mm. I make that true in my own life? that I am really part of this global movement, part of uh, the global church. And am I focusing on yeah. the smaller issues or am I keeping the main thing, the main thing yeah. as we come together? So, yeah, I guess I find it a pers personally challenging and the invitation to uh, try and live it out. That that keeps me occupied. Well, um, <laughs> and, and I like the phrase you used about how do I live into that? You know, it's funny. I was taking a walk. I had about an hour free between this and the last podcast. And I was thinking about, okay, are there a few words I could use to describe how it looks like you get to live your life and what are the Christ-like traits or qualities or desires he would have for us that you get to live into? And I landed on humility, unity, and generosity. And I thought, whoa, if, if that's any of us and we're playing life in those spheres, that's going to mature us in Christ a lot, just in those mm. three areas. Do you do you acknowledge that? Do you say, yeah, I guess I spend a lot of time in growth and development and focus on humility, unity, and generosity. Does that click mm. with you at all? Oh, I, I, I've never heard anyone articulate those three. I love those three words. That is a really, really good one. And when I think about the people that have had the most significant impact on my life, that I respect those individuals that don't just create an organization, they create movements. Those three are always, always part of, of, uh, of, of their character of who they are. Yeah. Those are three powerful words. I love it. Is that something you think in your mind that God just put in you or did you get excited about those and you've kind of done things to fan the flame to grow? Obviously they're one and the same, but for you to say, okay, I'm going to really grow in humility. I'm going to really grow and being a unifier and being about unity within the body of Christ. And I'm going to grow in generosity. So we talked about my day job with Hope International. I guess my non-work hour job is I do love the writing process. I love the idea of trying to, instead of being pulled shallow, all of us, right? There's more to do than time to do it. The tendency is to be pulled shallow. And I've loved the book writing process because it causes us to go deep. 
And those three words that you say, I've never written about something that I would think that I'm an expert in, but an area that I want to grow in. And it's interesting in those three words, I mean, unity, that's totally with rooting for rivals. That is what the book is about, not because I figured it out, but because I see individuals that have figured it out and they are having an incredible impact and there is joy and there is freedom in the way that they approach the work. And I want to grow more into that. And then generosity, you know, we did a work in a nonprofit space and we did a book on, uh, on philanthropy and wrote it with one of the most incredibly generous individuals that I have ever met. Name is David Weekly. And we just explored it from the two sides, from the organizational perspective and from the philanthropic perspective and say, what would it look like for us to grow in generosity together? What would that look like to be known as radically generous people, um, organizations, and as individuals that are that are investing? So yeah. And then humility. I wrote a book called The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good, which is all about how easy it is mm-hmm. for us to get so excited about our brand, our look, our image, our organization that we actually miss what matters most. And there is a whole lot of danger that comes with doing good. So and not that I have figured it out, but it's interesting. I I have spent time thinking about those as something that I want to grow in, in every single one of those areas. And uh, hopefully I'm a little further along this sure. year than I was uh, last year on the journey. There's, there's nothing more we could say to that. That's like the James Clear, you know, improve and grow 1% every day type of thing. So, so like I said, the two books of yours, I think I've probably read three or four, but the two that have really impacted me are Mission Drift and uh, Rooting for Rivals. And I'll get to Rooting for Rivals and how that played out for us. But both of these books have been books that an organization that I'm tied to, you have a lot of connection and relationships with Mission Increase. They've really bought into and Mission Increase, for those that aren't familiar with it, helps nonprofits and ministries grow in capacity, better doing what they do to serve the people trying to serve, dealing with the mission of what God's created them to do. Mission Drift was really interesting for me because I think it's so easy for us to buy into something, whatever it is, see a cause. I don't know how many times I've seen people try to go address something without really stepping back and looking at, is this a need or are people really wanting this or you just want to do it and hope people fund you, which are two very different things. And I think on a personal level, what I love about the idea of mission drift is, uh, and I want you to maybe speak to this because it's easy to speak to an organizational level, but maybe for people listening, this applies to everybody as an individual. How do you stay true to who you're wanting to be? You know, I think of the people I know, and, and this happens, I'm 53 with a 14-year-old daughter, three boys, 16, 18, and 20. And it's easy to say, I want my kids to know and love and serve Jesus, and everything's going to be about that. And then they never go to church because they're playing the sports stuff all the time. Or, you know, my kid's this, my kid's got to be better than this kid at that. this, my kid's got to be the best here, we got to have the biggest house, we got to have the best house, we've got to have the greatest carport or garage, five cars, whatever, and everything done says, I can't do that first and most important thing, which is follow, love, serve, know Jesus. So speak to Mission Drift more from a personal standpoint, which like I said, you wrote organizationally, ministry-wise, but where do you see that play out in individual lives? So well said. The book was definitely written for organizations. How can organizations make sure that they do not drift and compromise on what matters most? And there are a lot of surprising examples of mission drift organizationally happening all around us. But what you're what you're raising is exactly kind of the conclusion that we come to, which is avoiding mission drift or staying mission true. It starts with you. Like it actually is not an organizational issue. It is a deeply personal issue that then is reflected in an organizational context. Yeah, that was the conclusion that we came to that mission drift while we were talking about it at an organizational level. At the end of the day, it is a deeply personal issue. And if you want to stay mission true, it has to start with you. Like that is the conclusion. Organizations are just a reflection of what is happening in the lives, in the hearts of leaders and individuals on the team. So given that is true, you see the same thing with Mission Drift happening, not just in the organizational context, but in the family context. And one of the most sobering things that we found was actually a quote from Dr. Paul Tripp, but he said, the passions of the first generation become the preferences of the second generation. Mm. They become irrelevant to the third generation. And just like you, oh, I so desperately 
long to see my kids fully follow Jesus? And how do we make sure that passions do not slowly become preferences in the work that we do and the way that we do it and in the homes and those that we care about most? So yeah, deeply personal. So what do we do? I think the conclusion though is similar. What we do to make sure organizations don't drift and what we do to make sure that we don't drift are really, really similar. And it comes down to clarity. Do we know what our mission is? Do we know what matters most? Is there clarity about that? And then is there intentionality? Do we connect the day-to-day decisions that we make with Mm. that bigger picture of what we say we believe matters most? If we have clarity of our mission and then we can make the day-to-day decisions in light of that mission, in light of what matters most, uh, you are far less likely to experience the well-worn path of drift. Yeah. See, I think a lot of this to me goes back to simplicity. It goes back to the fear of missing out. I think a lot of people have the fear of missing out. You know, parents sometimes can be worse than their kids about that. They don't want themselves, certainly don't want their kids missing out on anything and everything. They think they've got to go for it all. And I think we just struggle with time. I think, you know, we've clearly, you know, put the trophy up there for whoever's the busiest is the best and they win and whatever. And it's just, it's such a lie to me straight from the pit of hell. What was it when, when Dallas Willard and John Ortberg had that conversation about, you know, what what do I want to do if, you know, Ortberg said something about basically, what do I want to do if I want to experience all there is experience of Jesus, something like that. Thought about it. And he, he said, you know, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And he goes, okay, what else? He goes, that's it. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And you know, the trophy, the busiest, time, not being able to keep things simple. I just think it crushes us. Uh, Now let's go to the organizational side, because one of the spaces where you talk a lot about admission drift is, is uh, colleges and universities, particularly Ivy league schools and in ministry, it's no different. You can chase where you think people want you to go. You chase what's current. You chase what's popular. You chase, okay, this person over here is going to give us money to go do something totally different. How do we fight that wherever it applies to organizations and in our individual lives, stay in mission true when all these things pull us other directions? I think Ivy League and and education in general is such an interesting case study because you have the history. Many of them founded at a different time. Many of them founded with so clear and overt purpose statements. And uh, we're given this benefit that drift oftentimes happens slowly. And the more time that goes by, the easier it is to articulate, have they deviated at some point in their history from what they said mattered most uh, in the early years? And yeah, when Harvard University was founded, the mission statement was that that would be a place where individuals are plainly instructed to know that the main end of your life is to know God and Jesus Christ. Like Mm -hmm. it was bold. It was clear. They had veritas as their motto. And then even in a diploma until very recently, it would say veritas, so truth. And then it would say Christo et Ecclesia. So truth for Christ and the church. Mm. That literally is what was woven into the crest. And yet it was not passed on um, at some point from one generation to the next. But I think that higher education, it's happening everywhere. We just don't have the ability to have a 300-year history that we can look and learn and see how indeed it did happen. So yeah, I think that that to me is just the sobering piece and say, God, help in my season of leadership, help the organization that I am part of, help the church, help help us to be an organization that stays mission true. Yeah, so that's uh, that's certainly the sobering part of all the research, all the studies was just to realize how prevalent it is. But yeah. at the same time, so enormously encouraging when you find those leaders that have figured out a way to stay mission true. And and that's really what I'm excited about. Let's let's have more of those leaders in our day, in our time, leaders that know how to winsomely and full of grace stay on the mission that God has given them. You know, it's interesting about that. One of the things I've tried to do a lot, we had to pretty radically shift what we do with my day job, the gathering of the Miami Valley, which our tagline is connecting men to men and men to God. And over COVID, we had probably 15 to 20 small groups at that time. And most of them could not be together in public because there were stay at home orders. So we shifted to online. We created an online group only that we have continued on to this day for guys that moved around. But, you know, now coming back when we've not fully brought some stuff back, I can think of one thing we've done, which is a lunch series. And we talked about, okay, do we bring that back and have these lunches where guys gather on like a Friday around lunchtime, 40, 50 guys together. But now we're asking, like, is there a compelling reason to bring it back? If there's not, then we don't do it. 
But if there's a compelling reason and it fits within who we are, let's do it. But if we've taken something away, unless there's a compelling reason to bring it back, it needs to probably stay on a shelf, which isn't fun. There's a, you know, a little bit of an area of that. That was kind of a sexy thing to say we did. And guys on a Friday could come together and network for a while and eat lunch and hear a great speaker and then say, hey, I've just you know, hit my quota for the week of networking and now I'm going to go play on a golf course. But let's let's shift radically kind of to stage left here, if you will, and talk about rooting for rivals. So that book, I had read it in a number of Mission Increase book clubs, and I just kind of felt compelled with our friend. He told me to tell you hello, Wally and Ann Martinson. And Wally and I said, let's get about shy of two dozen leaders in our community, civic, business, pastors, nonprofit leaders, and let's go through this book together. I didn't think they'd say yes. All but one of them did. And we spent three weeks really diving into that book. And you know, it's, it's very clear. We're not going to be rivals where we don't need to be rivals. Unpack that book. Let our listeners know that book, why you wrote it, what's significant about it, and maybe some testimonies other places where that book has had an impact. Like, whoa, I didn't write it for this, but this happened because of it. Yeah, well, Jeff, I know you love sports as do I and love a good rivalry uh, mm-hmm. as well. And there's something that is just so fun, right? The, the temperature goes up when you know you're playing against that team. And it doesn't matter if it is U11 soccer or whether it is NFL, it doesn't matter. You know when there is that rivalry. And I think that is just fun. It just elevates the game, elevates those moments. But the crazy thing is, is that is not just confined to a sports setting, and the little secret within nonprofits and and Christian ministries is that that spirit of rivalry is alive and well in this context as well. Oftentimes it's done with a veneer of mm-hmm. Christian nice, but at the core it is my team is going to beat your yes. team. <laughs> and without ever pausing, like, wait, what's the game we're playing? And are we actually on opposite sides? <laughs> Are we actually on the same team in that? So it's really designed to say, what is it? What is it that causes us to think and act with organizations, not in a gracious way, but in a spirit of rivalry? And we know I had one friend that sent me this ridiculous advertisement for a church and um, it was in a local newspaper and it said, is your church boring? Then come check out ours as if the way to advertise (laughs) was to subtly, you know, speak negatively of the one down the street. And And so the goal was to say, what is it that causes some leaders that live and lead in a different way with a a wonderfully open-handed, generous posture? What is it that they believe and what is it that they do? And we kept hearing these two questions again and again, and leaders that really could fully enthusiastically root for the rivals, turn rivals into friends, were those that believed in a world of abundance, not scarcity. They said, your success does not come at my expense. There is more than enough for all of us. Those are the individuals that talked about five loaves and two fish being enough to feed the multitude with leftovers. Mm. Uh, That is the worldview. So do we believe in a world of scarcity or abundance? Does God have enough? And then the second worldview question was, do I believe my mission, my work is about my organization or is it about the kingdom of God? And we found that individuals that lived with that radical open-handed posture, they did not let logos and egos get in the way or cloud their vision from remembering what matters most. And again, I believe I'm part of a mission that is much bigger than Hope International. I love the work that we do, but we are a small part of a much bigger work, much more important, much more impressive work that started the moment that Jesus raised from the dead and continues until the moment that he comes back. And anytime I make decisions of what is best for hope instead of what is best Mm. for the kingdom, I have completely lost sight of what matters most. So do we believe in a world of abundance or scarcity? Do we believe that our mission, our calling is about the kingdom of God or our little club? And those two questions will shape whether or not uh, we're able to yeah, engage in partnership and, and a graciousness with other organizations. So give us a couple of testimonies or, or at least one, like where you've seen that book, similar to maybe what happened to us. You know, we had some of the bigger church pastors, key city leaders who don't necessarily align sometimes, maybe on the right things to move our city forward. And it can be competitive. Same with some ministry nonprofits who we might feel like, oh, if 
this donor gives to that person, they're not giving to us or vice versa. There was just a really neat spirit that came out of that where you saw people working together, see things through different lens, whatever. Have you heard of other stories where people have used that book and it's really been much bigger than what you ever thought that book could do? Oh, absolutely. And I didn't know the story, Jeff, of how you had used it. That's so encouraging. Thank you for sharing that. That is Wally needs to communicate better to you. We'll get on Wally for that one. (laughs) That's so encouraging. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the, the yes is the short answer, right? There are lots of ways. It's been so encouraging to hear. And, um, you know, I, I think about a group that came together and before they were all involved in um, how can we help kids? And they created this goal of saying, you know what, instead of just growing our organization, what if we could clear the list of kids that are waiting for a home? That is impossible for one organization yes. to do. So they brought together the welfare, the prevention, the support, the the support, like all of these different aspects that are necessary to make sure that every child is in a, a, a home and they cleared the list. And I love that. Individual came together, a group of organizations and did something similar, but with anti-human trafficking. And they said, our region has too much going on. What does it take for us to dramatically decrease um, that this is a hub for uh, human trafficking. And that is not what one organization can mm-hmm. do. It involves all kinds of aspects from law enforcement to um, prevention, to education, like all of these different components. And I think a huge piece of this is just that clarity of how do we have a goal that allows us to have alignment in pursuit of that goal and all of us moving together towards that. So the broader movement of collective impact, I think we're just beginning to understand how powerful, how significant it is. But then one that uh, really was critical in understanding the power of this was really the example of Bible translation, that organizations were on track to see the Bible translated into every language on earth by the year 2150. A group of donors and a bunch of Bible translation organizations came together. They started meeting every month. They started praying together, started having joint events. And they said, what if we collectively said, how quickly can we see the Bible translated into every language on earth? Instead of being on track to see that accomplished by the year 2150, they're now on track to see that accomplished by the year 2033. They took 117 years off of the pace of progress. And Jeff, Lord willing, you and I are going to be there to celebrate, right? That this will be accomplished within our lifetime because organizations extended their gaze beyond the bounds of their organization and to a bigger goal that brought them together. And I think that is powerful and beautiful. See, I think what's so hard is I, as I hear that, I'm going to, I'm going to go solely to the church world for a minute. When I hear something, and you told that story in Columbus at that lunch several weeks back, I hate the thought of like with churches so often, it seems like it's one of two things. Either we're trying to keep the doors open. We at least want to stake status quo. My grandfather, my great grandfather, somebody started this things years ago. We got to keep seeing it stay alive or we're doing so well. The budget's there. Everything's going right. We don't need anybody else. And inevitably, I just don't believe if you try to build a local church, you're not going to get the kingdom. But if you're going to build the kingdom, you can get the local church. Argue that. Am I wrong? No, it, no, you're, you're you're exactly right. And and what you're saying is look at what the big picture is. Look at what the ultimate goal is. And I don't know, it reminds me of um, you know, Matthew 6:33, like what are we supposed to seek first? We're supposed to seek first the good of our organization, seek first the good of our no, we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So let's go after that. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we just can lose sight because there's so much going on in our own world, our own whirlwind. It helps to just take a pause, get the gaze up and say, what matters most? What are we ultimately trying to do? And uh, the more we can get that gaze up, I think some of the smaller issues uh, mm. fade away as we pursue a bigger and better and broader uh, mission than any of us can accomplish on our own. See, I love what you're saying, but it's also so frustrating because I'm like, shouldn't we just be able to flip this on a dime and go for it and do it? And inevitably, I think the answer is, again, keep putting the bigger, better, we can't do this on our own together type of thing. But it's not an easy ship to see churches, particularly parachurch are in the same boat a little bit, but just to not make it just about them. Let's get back to, you mentioned how beyond your day job, you like kind of the writing process. You like what it does. How do you go about that? When you sit down or 
over a matter of weeks or months, God's maybe stirring something in your heart. Do you roll with, this is really in my heart and I'm going to do it? Do you speak to, do you seek out something where you see a need? Do you say, which I don't think you do this, hey, this idea could sell a lot of books. I want to sell a lot of books, so I'm going to go down that road. What's the process to create something that you want to write about and then see that thing through to say, okay, this is this is where we're going with the next book? Yeah. So I'm enormously thankful that I do have a day job because it is it is hard uh, to write a book and it is even harder to figure out how do we share that message around. So I uh, this definitely is is uh, in the hobby category and I'm so thankful uh, for that. But to me, it's what is an issue that I am struggling with? And I use book writing as an excuse to talk to some amazing leaders mm. around the world that are further and farther along. So I don't start with market. I start with what's the need? And my world is oftentimes nonprofit leaders. And those are the individuals that I have, um, you know, I'm in regular conversation with. And there are some themes that come up and again and again. I'm part of a, a group and we do this peer member processing where we each come with a big issue that we're facing and we get to help each other wrestle through that. And there are some themes that come up again and again and yep. again. And so again, the way that I am just wired is, huh, uh, I wonder who has figured that out. And I've written about a book every year. And so what do I want to focus on for the next year and start with a problem statement, yes. not knowing what the solution is, but what is it? So with Rooting for Rivals, what is it that inhibits kingdom collaboration in the way that we operate and how and, and mission drift? What is it that causes us to lose sight of our core mission? Anyway, so yeah, that's that's spiritual danger doing good. What is it that causes far too many leaders to self-destruct? How can that not be my story? Yeah. Uh, the story of those that I care about. So anyway, that that's that's kind of the model. And then I've never written anything. I am a co-author. I always work with other people. I find that to be great sure. joy. So yeah, Chris Horst is the one who collaborated with uh, Rooting for Rivals and Mission Drift and, and he, the gift of disillusionment as well as with Jill Heisey as well. So yeah, just great, great friends. And we get to work on these projects together. Yeah, Gift of Dilution is next on my list because I got that when you were mm -hmm. Columbus. So what's to come? What, what are you thinking about? What are you processing for down the road that gets you excited to be writing about? Yeah, so there's always a lag between when you write and when you launch. So I can tell you and let me know if you want a copy. But January 16th, we have a book that's called Lead with Prayer that launches. Worked on that with Cameron Doolittle, Ryan Skoog, and Jill Heisey. And it's really all about this, this recent studies. There have been several studies that have been done recently, and they find that leaders and organizations, the conclusion is, do not have vibrant prayer lives. Mm. Only 70% of pastors are happy with their prayer life, wow. let alone uh, all of us. So how can we grow to be leaders who prioritize and practice prayer? And then how can we create organizational cultures that really are built on this uh, belief that prayer matters? And, oh, it has been transformative in my life and with, with Hope International to get to speak with leaders that are just extraordinary from John Ortberg, you just mentioned, or Francis Chan or Johnny mm. Erickson Tata, or, I mean, it has been it it has been radically transformative in my prayer life to learn from from some remarkable leaders um, on that. So yeah, You're saying, book is just called Lead you, with Prayer. Just since you started the process of writing that book, it's changed you significantly. Absolutely. So Absolutely. What, what's the number yeah. one thing you're doing? Like, what's the number one thing you've said, major pivot here, I'm doing this now that I didn't do before? Oh, man, one thing. Uh, I'm not going to give you one. I'll give you a couple of the Please. things. So first of all, just like the posture matters. The prayer posture matters. Um, the way that our body is impacts the way that uh, we approach. And and just to experiment, there's a lot of different things mm -hmm. throughout history. So that's that's one uh, very clear, very concrete. Wow. The second is like create the plan. Um, we have changed the organizational habits and rhythms of how we engage in prayer as a result of learning from some remarkable other organizations that are further along on the journey. Mm -hmm. And there is a more vibrant prayer life as well. Yeah. And then, so you got the plan, you got that. And I think the other kind of piece is prayer is oftentimes seen as an individual activity, oftentimes in our culture. If you Google prayer, yeah. like whatever, 90 something percent are going to be individual pictures. 
And I think we're missing out. There's something about the communal aspect of prayer that is powerful. So doing some creative ways of what does it look like to bring groups of people together uh, in more of a structured way. And that has also been... Uh, I could go on, uh, but yeah, let me send you a book. Uh, yes, please. I mean, I, yeah, because I think of all the stuff you said, I said two books of yours really stand out. That feels like on a personal level, the book that can be the most transformational to me. What I love is a couple of times already you've alluded to connecting with, talking to, dialoguing with people who are further down the road from you. Uh, and I think that's just key. Like who's had, like, I tell people all the time, I've had people say, so why do you do this podcast? Or how many listeners do you got or whatever? I said, look, these are people I really want to talk to. I know I've got something to learn from them. If nobody ever listens, okay, I care a little bit. I'd be lying if I didn't say <laughs> I want more listeners than not. But I'm like, you know, I get to talk. Like I was interviewing a president Asbury a little bit ago, and he listened to one of my podcasts and told me somebody that he knew that I've interviewed and how much he respects this guy. I'm like, yeah, I learned a ton from that guy. And I learned wow. a ton from the president Asbury today. I'm learning a ton from you. And it's like, if it just serves me, it's it's making a need felt and addressing it. So I love kind of just your, you, know, you use the word posture. I love your posture in all that. So it's hard to want to go now. I'm getting ready to transition to something really goofy. So I hate being all serious and meaty and <laughs> I'm, I'm highly, you know, being worked on here by Holy spirit, but uh, we got to, we got to transition to some goofiness. So I have these rapid five kind of goofy questions that are fast hitting, kind of light, get to know you on a different level. Uh, what's your favorite childhood snack or cereal, Peter? Oh, life cereal. I mean, Mikey likes Mikey, it and I do too. Yep. Cinnamon. Jerry Seinfeld said it. Anything that's good in life, you say, <laughs> what's it got in? Oh, it's got cinnamon. That's it. What is your favorite book you most want to gift to other people? We'll say it's one that's not yours. <laughs> I definitely have given more, by the way, than yeah. anything else sure. uh, on that. But, you know, I really uh, have just recently been been giving away um uh, Philip Yancey's autobiography, I find to be mm. so interesting. And if you haven't had him as a, a guest on your podcast, but it's uh, where I the need light someone falls. like you to get him, probably. It's it is it is a powerful story. Yeah, just of you you understand everything that you've read of his wow. uh, in terms of grace and forgiveness. So yeah, that's the one that right now I've been I've been given out. Wow, that's that's interesting. I've had that book a couple times, and just for whatever reason, it's something about the light. What's it called? Where lights in the title? Yeah, where the light falls, I believe. Yes, where the light falls. So you have majorly pushed me to get that on hold as soon as I get done talking to you. Third one, your family, you got four kids. You and your wife and your four kids are going on a trip somewhere. You've traveled around a lot, so I know you've been to this third place that some people have not been to. You got to stop 10 minutes sooner than you thought. Somebody's got to go to the bathroom. You're like, we're not stopping again. We're hitting it now. And you see on the exit sign, Chick-fil-A, McDonald's. In and out burger, where are the Greer's going? Oh man, I mean it's it's it, it, it's a mix between Chick Fil A and McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's because the app has more free food than any <laughs> other app on that uh, Chick Fil A because it just tastes better. So that's the uh, that, that's the honest answer. Have you been on the Chick Fil A app this week? They're giving away free stuff like every day. I have not been on this week, but I literally will put that immediately yeah. after we're done. That's the app that I'm pulling up. You missed chocolate chip cookies. You missed oh, chicken on. biscuit. Today was chicken biscuit again. Uh, there's something else good. So I was I was texting my wife this morning like, hey, tell me your password you're at. And then she didn't even have the deal. But we got three free chicken biscuits today. So what is, uh, whether this is you by yourself, family, you and your wife, what is a movie that every time you stumble upon it, you get pulled in? I'm sorry. I'm pulling up the Chick-fil-A app right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. 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 I will put the phone down. No, you're good. Um, oh, man. Uh, you know, um, so it's it's because uh, I'll tell you the exact one, but it is uh, my daughter. No one else in the family really got into this, but my daughter got into uh, Lord of the Rings. Mm. And it's the obviously an amazing epic story, but then it's just the memories of watching it with Lily that uh, is really special. So Lord of the Rings, you know, The Hobbit, I'm I'm going to be stopping. I'm going to be watching that. There you go. Well, I'm changing my fifth question because I'm trying to, I want to hear you who you say based on looking at you on the screen, who would be the actor that would play you in a movie? <laughs> oh dear. First of all, there, there's going to be no movie uh, on that. Um, I mean, I, I'm going, I'm, I'm going, um, 
I'm going Matt Damon. I'm going to say, yeah, there there we go. That's that's a pretty bold one, but uh, that's what I'm going with. You're pretty tall though, right? I mean, six one. Yeah, Matt Damon's like he's got to be like five ten, right? Five nine. <laughs> I've never thought of that question before. I don't know. <laughs> well, okay. Well, at least you picked a great actor and good looking guy, and he's got to me still to this day uh, one of the best lines ever in a movie. He's got how you like them apples. So uh, that's a good one. And I guess maybe I grew up in Massachusetts, you know, so maybe there's a little bit of that uh, connection too when he yeah. had the New England accent. I love. You could you could have asked him and, and old Ben to say, "Get me in uh, air." Yeah. <laughs> which my wife loved that movie of the one about the uh, air Jordans. Yeah. So how do you encourage people? So I got, I, I posted on the mission increase transformational giving Ohio page and asked people, do you have a question that you would want Peter Greer to get asked? So somebody said a ministry leader asked me to ask you fan mail, how should you handle it? If you learn a great idea from a rival organization during a collaborative project and would then want to implement something similar separately in the organization. So they kind of, Maybe stole one of your ideas instead of it being a collaboration. They're now doing it in their own organization. How would you handle that? Uh, you know, I, I find myself um, increasingly um, there's two different parts of that, right? How, how would I hope that I responded? How would I actually respond to that? Um, increasingly, I just think living lives with, with radical generosity and open-handedness is a better way to live. And so if, if you're on the side of, an organization taking one of your ideas, I would just say, Let praise God, like mm. imitation is the highest compliment you can get paid. Yeah. Um, it means there's more result. And by the way, what do you have that you didn't receive? I love that mm. question that Paul asks, like, seriously, that idea that is yours, Nothing. where exactly did that come from? <laughs> and yeah. uh, let's just think about that. So I would say radically open-handed. If you're the organization that is going to be taking that idea that you heard from someone else, I would sure encourage you to start with a posture of treat others the way you would want to be treated. And my guess is you'd probably not want to find out by some press release or something else. The common courtesy would be to go to meet with them and to ask some honest conversations. What is additive about you doing it versus pointing people to them? Is there some important difference? How would it expand impact? And just having a posture of friendship and conversation and relationship instead of you know, almost like you imagine someone smuggling uh, top secret files sure. and then copying some sort of patent that is out there. Um, so I don't know, just taking the posture of gracious communication. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to get super practical for a, a last question here. What is discipleship as you talk about, you know, what you're trying to grow in and how you want to be different now than, you know, however long ago, what does daily discipleship look like for you in this season of life? And what does it look like maybe on a more annual basis? What are some practical things you're doing to grow in Christ? Yeah. Uh, again, the the prayer book has been significant in in understanding the prayer practices and and really moving from this idea of like what is the duty or obligation to pray to I can't wait to spend time in prayer, like finding mm-hmm. that movement from duty to delight. And that has come from habit, from practice, and is not always there, but is sure there more now than it used to be. Wow. So yeah, the, the 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 daily, like starting the day, for me, it's exercise, and then it is time in prayer in the word, and just making sure that that is, I say that matters, does my schedule show that that matters? Mm. Um, so making sure that's part of it. But maybe the other piece is, I found that mentorship has been transformational in my life. And I read a book that has this idea of constellation mentoring. So instead of trying to find one person that is like, that is the mentor, I I don't know who that person is because there's certain parts of individuals that I really respect. And maybe there are other parts of their life. I'm not sure I really want to emulate that Mm. in the same way. So it says, break up the areas that you want to learn and grow, find a specific person in each of those categories and be intentional about spending time with them. So I have seven areas where I want to learn and grow. And there are specific individuals in that. And it has been so fantastic. And one of the individuals um, is my dad. And at this stage, just having time to learn. Yeah, I just... I, I so respect him and it's, you know, he's at a different stage and I just don't want to miss out on the days that we have left learning and growing from him. So yeah, yeah again, I think a lot of the writing or whatever comes down to like simple clarity mm-hmm. and then intentionality of practice, wow. like 
Let's figure it out. If you say you want to grow, yeah, what are the ways to actually make sure you are growing? And that has certainly had a profound impact on my relationship with Jesus, as well as my leadership journey and, and how I want to be as a dad and husband too. Amen. That's so good. Well, hey, I want to close on this. So you're a big Patriots fan, right? I mean, you don't, you're not born and raised in Massachusetts and, and you not learn how to be a wicked, awesome, you know, Pats fan. Absolutely. So I'm a Colts fan. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, originally. So I'm a huge Peyton Manning fan. I love Tony Dungy. And I thought you probably have not heard this. So I wanted to add a little value to your life today at the end of our podcast. So Nikki Glazer, who's a comedian who I like about 70% of where she goes. And then she kind of starts going off the rails a little bit, but she was at a, a roast and I forgot who they were roasting, but Peyton was up on a stage. So she looks at Peyton and she made two comments. She looks at him and she goes, Peyton, Hey Peyton, it's so good. You're here. She goes, Peyton, you're here. You're here with it. Like Peyton, you're here. Uh, alluding to like him having concussions is like any quarterback has or whatever. Then she says, this was the part that was so great. She said, hey, everybody, don't you think Peyton is like really good at these commercials? Like he's so funny. He's so engaging. People love you in these commercials. She goes, Peyton, I'm trying to think of like how best to describe how good you are in these commercials. She goes, it's like you're the, you're the Tom Brady of commercials. <laughs> and the look on his face, and he's shaking his head. He's hiding, he's cracking up laughing. And I'm like, dang. It's funny. You, I mean, you can't argue. <laughs> People ask me all the time. They're like, okay, you love Peyton Manning. You think he's better than Tom Brady, don't you? I said, I so want to say yes. <laughs> but I can't. It's it's Brady over me. You're Manning. a gracious fan. Uh, you, you, you are rooting for your rivals. I respect well, that. There you go. Hey, that you, recognize, a... you recognize the GOAT, and I, I respect that. That is a great close. I'm, I didn't even think about you saying I'm rooting for rivals. That's great. So, Peter, <laughs> if people want to know more about you, obviously there's hopeinternational.org. Where else would they want to go to? Yeah, so, I mean, anything about the kind of writing in books, uh, Peter K. Greer, Dot com as well. So my middle name is Keith. So peterkgreer.com is where you can find more info. Okay. Hey, this was a treat. I will definitely love to get a copy of that book. And uh, maybe we can have you on again sometime around that time and focus much more of that conversation on the book and encourage people to get it. And I'm sure Mission Increase will be pumping that book out to people. <laughs> I love Mission Increase and I have loved the conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Peter. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at GatheringMiamiValley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.